Welcome to the Knight and Rose Show, where we discuss practical ways of living out an authentic Christian worldview. Today's topic is, what should Christians think about Black Lives Matter? I'm Wintry Knight. And I'm Desert Rose. So over the past several years, we've seen the rise of different groups claiming to have the solution to the problem of racism in America. Today, we're going to discuss the problem, the solution, and where to go from here. So Wintry Knight, I want to start by asking you about your story. What is your ethnic background? What can you tell us about your family? My parents were born in a Caribbean country, so I'm West Indian Black. My parents are still married, but my mom's side of the family is all Muslim, and my dad's side of the family is all Hindu, mostly Hindu and some Catholic. My parents were pretty poor. Uh, My dad's family worked on land that they didn't own, picking crops. And my mom's side of the family rented out bulls for people who wanted to like pull stuff around. It's like renting out tractors, but not quite the same. Wow, bulls. Yeah. Uh, My (laughs) descendants were slaves brought over from Africa, and I grew up poor as well. Uh, I didn't have a bicycle until I was in grade six, and we didn't have a family car until I was in grade eight. Interesting. Wow. So Mm -hmm. how and why did you immigrate to the United States? It was kind of my dad helped me a little by picking my major for me. I wanted to study English because I really love English literature. Uh, But he decided that I was going to study computer science because he really loved me not living at home. (laughs) Computer science was hard for me. I remember I failed my first test in second year calculus and I was always crying when I was trying to understand it. But eventually I got my degree. And it was around that time when I was doing my undergraduate that I noticed that a lot of social conservatives were getting persecuted or censored. So as I was working my way through my bachelor's and master's, I started to think about moving to another country where I would have more freedom, like freedom of speech, freedom of of religion, and even more prosperity. The taxes were very high where I'm from too. So Mm -hmm. I started collecting credentials to be able to meet the requirements to get naturalized in America. So I not only did I get those degrees, but I also got a provisional patent, a publication, like a peer-reviewed publication. I presented at a conference, basically building up all the things that they would want so that I could immigrate in a high merit, very selective category. And after 16 years of working in information technology, my employer sponsored me for a green card and I got it. And then I had to wait a few more years until I could get citizenship, but I just got it recently. Wow. So it sounds like that uh, process was pretty challenging for you Mm -hmm. and that, you know, it wasn't the result of of like just getting lucky or having some sort of just amazing IQ in uh, math or science or technology or, you know, the life plan for so many Americans of follow your heart. (laughs) Yeah. Don't follow your heart. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us, um, uh, how has this worked out for you? Where are you now? Yeah. So I just got citizenship recently. I did have to spend a long time renting and that kind of hurt my finances. But at, but right now I've, I'm on track to retire pretty soon. I'm sitting on about a million in cash. My house is fully paid off. I, I bought it for cash. It was a new construction home. And this kind of financial success it was despite me being terrible at making financial decisions. I have so many stories I could tell you about just not doing the right thing and, and so on. But the important thing is, is that uh, the prosperity is there and I have the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion to have a, a blog where I get to say what I want on the most important issues and a podcast now with you uh, where we get to just mm-hmm. speak our minds and not care what anyone thinks. Mm hmm. Yes. I live in a nice uh, semi-rural area where I am safe from crime and violence. 
Wow. And you said you, you're close to retirement, and I, I happen to know how young you are. That's that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I, I'm in my <laughs> mid, I'm in my mid 40s, and I think probably you know most people are surprised that uh, you can you know save that much wealth. But like I said, the Christian worldview sets priorities on you, and my priorities are not spending money, not signaling status, and giving you know charity to other groups. So it just piles up. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So this is really interesting in light of comments like those from, for example, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the 1619 Project, um, mm-hmm. who, who claim that there's nothing Black people can do to uh, help themselves or to reverse the uh, racism of the past. So let me uh, read a quote of hers. She says, yeah. to summarize, none of the actions we are told Black people must take if they want to lift themselves out of poverty and gain financial stability— not marrying, not getting educated, not saving more, not owning a home, can mitigate 400 years of racialized plundering. So this doesn't seem to be your experience. I mean- No. What is she talking about? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, so so what's the difference? Why not? What, has, what happened to you? <laughs> yeah. She must be living in some other country than America because that's exactly the right path to prosperity. Trust me. I know. So the the reason I talked about all that stuff is to kind of show that I started off on home plate and I had to round three bases and come back to home. Whereas blacks who are born in America, they start out on third base and Mm -hmm. (laughs) they don't have to have the immigration battle. They don't have to rent for 20 years because the reason why do you rent for 20 years? I I didn't. uh, 16 years. Why did you rent? Oh, no. 20 years. Yeah. 16 years. And then I got the green card and then I waited a little bit before buying a house. So, you know, why would you throw money away? you know, to, mm-hmm. to landlords. And the answer is, if you lose your job, you get deported. So I'm wow. not going to have a fire sale of a house. So I just rented and rented and rented. Well, right. blacks were born in America. They don't have to do that. Right. So they're already in great shape compared to me, who who has all kinds of other problems. And there, I have no family here. Like I'm all alone. So wow. it's even harder than you think. But mm-hmm. um, I would say the difference between me and Nicole Hannah-Jones is basically that I actually was transformed by my experience of becoming a Christian, and it resulted in completely different priorities and decisions. So when I when I started out, I got uh, a New Testament from the Gideons when I was in grade grade five, and I read mm-hmm. it. They have like a two year schedule at the front of it, and I read it for two years. And then wow. I said, this this reads like history. It sounds good. Kind of fits with some intuitions I had about the objective morality and the origin of the universe, which were things that were occurring to me or had been presented to me at that time, even when I was very young. I augmented that Bible reading with apologetics and just gradually taking seriously the reality of God and the character of Jesus changed all my priorities and my decision making. So what I would say to Nicole Hannah-Jones is people start off being their own worst enemy. And the more that they focus on themselves, the harder it is for them to straighten up and function at a high level. So in my case, the Christian worldview ruled out things like having a TV. So I didn't have a TV for 15 years after I came wow. to America. And I only bought one because my coworkers bullied me into it. And I only use it <laughs> for watching StarCraft II like tournaments. Um, there was a recent uh, global tournament. I was very excited to watch that. Uh, but I don't watch like TV that's made in Hollywood. Uh, I don't believe in, you know, their worldview. Right. So um, just cutting out entertainment of every kind is really good. Cutting out alcohol, cutting out drugs, not chasing women and trying to improve your self-esteem by betting a whole bunch of women is is, mm-hmm. is really good for you. <laughs> yep. Imagine that. <laughs> what God yeah. says is really good for you. 
Yeah, but like I said, this you don't you don't look at the Bible and think, how can this be good for me? It's more like you look at the Bible and go, okay, I'm gonna take this seriously. Uh, do I like um, sitcoms? You know, do I like New Girl? And the answer is no, I don't like it. Uh, so I don't watch it. I have probably really different Christian role models than Nicole Hannah Jones and the Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter people. Like I like, I mentioned this in a previous episode. I like Dr. Walter Bradley, who made a huge difference as a Christian giving lectures all over America on evidence for Christianity and so on. Yeah, he's excellent. Yeah. And uh, I spend most of my time just talking to other Christians and participating in gospel enterprises with them. Wow. Yeah, very different path than uh, what we so frequently see coming out of the typical person born in America. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about one group in particular that's been in the news quite a bit over the past couple of years uh, that goes by the name Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. What problems is the Black Lives Matter organization trying to solve? Yeah, so I haven't really like uh, looked into them too much, but I read over their website and I've, I've obviously heard about them and seen them in the news. It seems to me that two of their big priorities are they are concerned that the police are biased against black people and that they are using excessive force, even to the point of having armed po white policemen uh, kill unarmed blacks. And they think this is happening a lot, so much that out of all the problems that black people face in America, this one, it needs to be the focus. Uh, and the other problem that they've got is wealth inequality. So they're looking at their neighbors and of different, uh, well, they're looking at their white neighbors, really. And they're saying, I don't have as much as you. And they think that this is because of systemic racism. It's not because they aren't doing the right things. It's because the system is working against them because on the basis of their skin color. Okay, so let's look at these problems individually. What is the evidence for anti-black police bias? Well, I mean, they're saying specifically this unarmed black was killed by these white police officers. And if you count the number of times that happened, uh, the last time I talked about this in a podcast with Tim Stratton, I used the 2019 numbers, then nine unarmed blacks were shot. So I looked up the numbers for the most recent year for this podcast, and it's down to six unarmed blacks that were shot in 2021. Now, every unarmed black that shot, you know, that needs some investigation. That's not a good thing. But six unarmed blacks? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Six six unarmed blacks. So are you saying like six for every thousand people or <laughs> what? It, can you... Clarify no, that. I'm talking six unarmed blacks total for, for the entire year in America. For the whole year in America? Right. Wow. That is not the impression that is given by our media or by uh, activists I've, I've heard from. Yeah. Like wow. I'm looking, I'm, I, I look at tweets on, uh, from like the woke evangelical elites uh, mm -hmm. on Twitter and they're all concerned about this. And I'm just thinking nobody broke into the computer lab in my office and tried to shoot me. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure there's something wrong, you know, with the, the people who are being shot. There's something about them that is exposing them to the police. But the second, the other thing is, is that the much bigger problem is that thousands of blacks a year are killed except 90% of those blacks that are killed are killed by other blacks. So why aren't we fussing about that? I think that's a much bigger problem. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, you mentioned, you know, are there different, um, uh, is there more going on than what we're told about? And I've read about some of these stories of unarmed blacks being shot by police. And it seems like in almost every case, it has happened after a violent struggle in which mm -hmm. the um, the person being stopped by police resisted arrest. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them had long criminal records. Some were on drugs. Mm -hmm. And in um, the cases where the officers were inappropriate, 
they were charged with murder um, mm-hmm. or manslaughter and justice was done. Mm-hmm. So that uh, really brings a bigger perspective to these cases. So tell us, um, speaking of police encounters, have you ever encountered the police or any type of police brutality? The only encounters I've had with the police have been when I got like pulled over for speeding. So I have this car, like I have a black convertible and it's like a roadster. So it's it's like a sports car. It's got a, r- a rear wheel differential, 50-50 weight distribution, torque sensing limited slip. The battery of the car is in the trunk and it's just totally designed for maneuverability and speed. And I am not able to resist this. So I'm very frequently going over <laughs> the speed limit. And uh, I usually get pulled over for speeding about once every three or four years. I should not be saying this. But uh, so those are the that's the limit of my uh, uh, encounters with the police. And, and here's how it goes. I see the flashing lights and I pull over on the side of the road. If it's nighttime, I turn on the dome light. If it's daytime, I put the top down if it's not already down. And I put my hands on the on the steering wheel where they can see it. They come over and they write me a ticket or they let me off. Uh, usually they write me a ticket and I just pay it by mail. And uh, you just have to be really respectful. Don't challenge their authority. Don't get violent. And just say yes, sir. No, sir. And accept responsibility. And just look at the speeding ticket as a tax on having an awesome car. <laughs> yeah, th- that is um, it's really interesting that you mentioned that I have some friends who are black who will uh, sometimes post on social media that it's so unfortunate that in today's day and age, um, black men have to have the black talk with their sons Mm -hmm. um, and tell them that when that if they're ever stopped by police, they need to put their hands on the steering wheel and they need to be respectful. They need to do whatever the police say. This strikes me as odd that this is considered, you know, the black talk to have mm-hmm. with your son if you're black, because that sounds exactly like the talk that my dad had with me when I was 15 and mm-hmm. that my mom had with me again when I was 16 and that my uh, my driver's ed teacher had with me when I was mm-hmm. 15 and again when I was 16. Um, so this, um, you know, I don't think this is a black talk. I think this is common wisdom that needs to be passed on from parents to their children. It's it's just what everybody needs to do. Yeah. I mean, these guys are just regular, regular guys and girls, you know, uh, they can be really stressed out. It's a very stressful job. They're not going to be perfect all the time, but they're carrying a loaded weapon. So this just isn't the time to challenge them. The time to challenge them is maybe later in court, you know, where you say, hey, this person didn't follow the law. They were mean to me. And, you, you know, you might win your case there, but don't challenge an armed person who has a stressful job. Yeah. In fact, that's exactly what I did on one occasion when I was stopped um, and charged with something that I believed was completely unfair. And I uh, I knew that that was not the time to challenge mm-hmm. it, but um, I received my ticket, which um, had a court date on it. And I showed mm-hmm. up for court mm-hmm. and I was given the opportunity to present my case and mm-hmm. I won and I actually was, was let off. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That is not the time to challenge the mm-hmm. officer when he's under stress and, and carrying a weapon and doesn't know how you're going to respond. You go to court and you figure it out there. So let's talk about the other, um, another perceived problem from uh, Black Lives Matter. What is the evidence of wealth inequality in America? Well, there, there are differential levels of income, but it's probably not what they think. 
So I'm looking at the data from the U.S. Census of 2018, and uh, uh, they have uh, split out the uh, household income of a variety of different ethnicities. So Mm -hmm. whites make about 68,000 per Mm -hmm. household. Now, you would think that they would be at the top and that all the non-white ethnicities would be at the bottom if there was systemic racism. But it turns out that there are 15 non-white ethnicities that out earn whites. Uh, wow, and I'm 15. Gonna, yeah, one, five, 15 wow. non-white ethnicities that out earn whites. And this isn't one person. This is the average household income. So this, wow. these ethnicities as a whole have somehow figured out how to live so that they can out earn white Americans and racism isn't holding them back. Let me show you these numbers. So Indian Americans, East Indian Americans, they, they make about $120,000 a year in terms of household income. Pakistani Americans, $77,315. Americans from Ghana, like Ghana in Africa, $69,343 household income. And Nigerians also from Africa. So we're talking, you know, continental African blacks, uh, $68,658. White Americans are lower down and they're making 67,937. Wow. That is really, truly fascinating. I mean, it seems Mm -hmm. like the, the people who are complaining about systemic racism are not making the same choices that these groups are making. It seems like there, there has to be something uh, culturally uh, significant going on there. Yeah. It's not skin color. Right. Right. It's not skin color, whatever is holding back blacks that they're concerned about. It's not, it's not racial discrimination because these Mm -hmm. other races are, are, would be suffering as well. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the proposed BLM solutions. What, what are they proposing? What do they think is the, um, the solution to these, uh, perceived problems? Okay. So the first problem was police bias and their solution is defund the police. Wow. Defund, like get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Like reduce their budget to zero and eliminate them and replace them with something else. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to see how that works out in a minute. Um, and then also on their website, I'm not sure why they say this, but they seem to regard marriage as a big problem. And so they say, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Wow. So nuclear family structure. So as in like a mother and a father raising their children. Yeah, that's bad. It's really, really bad. It's causing all these, uh, it's causing the police problem and the wealth inequality. I don't know. Wow. I just report what they say. And it's interesting that they would call that Western prescribed because that sounds an awful lot like God prescribed mm-hmm. <laughs> in Genesis too. Yeah. Not in the Western world. Yeah. Jesus talks about that. A man and a woman mm-hmm. uh, uh, should leave their mother and father and, and form one flesh marriages. Mm-hmm. And then naturally that's where children uh, come from and and so on. So uh, one thing I should note is that I noticed that all the Black Lives Matter founders are Marxists. And I think that a lot of their remedies are related to Marxist economics as well. Okay. Wow. So, so Black Lives Matter seems to be a very deceptive name. It's clearly not just about valuing Black lives, but about tearing down the structures that have been at the foundation of America since its beginning and totally remaking America. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think if you're talking about just basically they're, they're not comfortable with law enforcement, they're not comfortable with marriage and the family, and they're, they're not comfortable with the free enterprise system. And just, just to talk about the free enterprise system, we're talking about things like private property, uh, the rule of law, free trades, and so on. 
So. Wow. Yeah. And as someone who's, you know, worked throughout the developing world and read lots of um, stats and books on, on these topics, these seem to be the, uh, you know, what, what economists prescribe as making all the difference for raising people up out yeah. of, of poverty. So, but yeah. let's, uh, oh, no, before we... I have to interrupt you. So okay. r- related to that, there's an excellent book written by uh, Wayne Grudem and I think Barry Alverson or something. Mm-hmm. And they're, the title is called The Poverty of Nations. It's kind of a playoff mm-hmm. of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Basically, they analyze all of the different countries uh, based on these criteria for what they think makes a country wealthy or poor. So we should link to that in the description box as well. Definitely. That's, yeah, that's a great I, recommendation. I think if people are recommending an economic system that is known to result in poverty, they should definitely be more evidence driven because we should do what works. We shouldn't do mm-hmm. what sounds good to us. Yeah, exactly. So let's kind of step back maybe for a second and and go back to that first prescription of BLM. Uh, defunding mm-hmm. the police. Defunding the police, yeah. Will that help Black people in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. Like I said, we've we've been doing this for a couple of years now, right? So we have the data. The data is um, that, like I was just, I just tweeted something this morning about um, Portland, Oregon, and somebody made a chart of the number of homicides in Portland. And Portland is one of these cities that's very progressive. And they took seriously this plan of defunding the police. They slashed their police budget. Um, a lot of major cities did that. And mm-hmm. what happened in Portland is the number of homicides doubled and tripled in every year since they did that. And Shocker. The, uh, this past year was the highest year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, no, it yeah. hasn't worked out. I mean, it hasn't yeah. worked out for regular law-abiding blacks. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And from what I've seen, I mean, when when uh, your average kind of, you know, black person who's, you know, walking down the street, uh, minding their business, going to work is interviewed mm-hmm. and asked what they think about that policy. They're horrified by the thought. So I don't mm-hmm. think that this is something that most black people want. It's certainly not something I would want. Mm-hmm. Let's look at another um, prescribed solution of BLM. Mm-hmm. Will mm-hmm. destroying the nuclear family help blacks? What What impact is that likely to have? Yeah. So we were looking at those other ethnicities like the Indian Americans and Mm -hmm. Pakistani Americans. And we were wondering, well, what is it? What have they got that makes them so special? It isn't the right, you know, the white skin color. It's got to be something else. And Mm -hmm. it is something else. So let's take a look at the data from the U.S. census census that was released in 2019. Uh, According to that data, single mother, the single mother poverty rate was 34 percent. So 34 percent of single mothers are under the poverty line. But if you look at married couples, their poverty rate was 6%. So wow, marriage makes a huge yeah. difference, which is exactly what Black Lives Matter is telling us to abolish. Yep. Wow. Exactly the opposite of what's needed. Yeah. So you have anybody who listens to them is literally taking advice that's going to make them poorer. Wow. What else do you have for us? What do you think about with regard to the nuclear family? Yeah. So there's, I saw this study from the Stanford University Center for Education Policy Analysis. They said that uh, 65% of Black students are being raised by single parents, whereas 15% of Asian students were being raised by single parents. So I don't know about you, but I think it's a lot easier to monitor the homework and school of the children if there is a mom in the home, or at least if there's two people sharing the duties of of parenting, I saw another study about the amount of time being spent on homework as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Asians spend like two hours a night or something on homework. I'll I'll put the link mm-hmm. in the notes, but it's much, much lower for black students. 
And, yeah. and so I think, yeah, I, I think education is, is really important. Uh, mm -hmm. And it certainly works better in cases where there are two parents in the home. So Yeah, undoubtedly. And that, that really lines up with um, a great book I read years ago by mm -hmm. David Blankenhorn called Fatherless America. I mean, that, that was written in 1996. Yeah, I have and, the book. Okay, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he was, he was drawing attention to um, what was a huge problem in the 1990s, mm -hmm. and it's just gotten worse since then. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is something that needs to be taken really seriously. Um, yeah. And yet uh, Black Lives Matter is trying to do the exact opposite. That's just tragic. Yeah, I think I think what the problem is, is that they're, they're the in the black community, there's a 72 or 73 percent out of wedlock birth rate. And the response of pretty much everyone is not to say, let's take a look at what the Bible teaches about the timing of marriage and and child raising. It's kind of to say, um, let's not judge. Let's not mm -hmm. let's not make any judgments. Let's not say that there's any way that's right. And they think that by being very permissive and being very tolerant and inclusive that they're helping. But actually what happens is, is that children raised in single parent households are going more likely to be poor. They're more likely to do less homework. They're more likely to do poorly in school. It, you're really not helping anybody by lowering the bar. Yeah. And there's there's a much higher crime rate among boys who have been raised without a father in the home as well. You know, a whole host of problems. The, the uh, girls raised in the home tend to become uh, sexually active at an earlier age right. uh, because they're looking for uh, male validation that should be provided right. by the father. So mm -hmm. this isn't an accident. When people decide that they're going to get into the bedroom and uh, um, do things that produce children, we have to draw a line and say, well, you need to be committed first because children do better when there are uh, two committed parents there who are focused on raising them properly. So mm -hmm. the nuclear family is critical to the success of blacks, just like it's critical to the success of other non-white races who outperform whites in this country. I'm sorry, but we have to learn from what is working. And what right. is working is what Indian Americans and Pakistani Americans, Nigerian Americans, Ghanaian Americans, and all of the Asians are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So let's talk about that third proposed solution that you mentioned uh, from BLM. The um, Marxism? Uh, yes, Marxism. So okay. so um, just in case people aren't quite familiar with, with a couple of these terms, mm -hmm. with regard to capitalism, um, buyers and sellers have to agree before a trade is made. So a seller can set a price, but if buyers don't like that price, they mm -hmm. don't have to buy anything. They don't have to buy from that seller. They can go to another seller. Um, they have uh, many different options. It's only when both people agree that the price and the quality are favorable to them mm -hmm. that a trade occurs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it's very um, market driven. And how much is produced is, you know, really dependent on how much of a demand there is. If people want more, then sellers make more. If, if people don't want what they're selling, they, mm -hmm. they can make something else. In contrast with Marxism, the central government decides what is going to be produced, how much of it is going to be produced, mm -hmm. how much it's going to sell for. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the government is really um, guessing and, and saying this, you know, we're, we're just going to produce this such and such amount of bread. And if there's not enough, well, oops, uh, if there's too much, well, you know, oops. <laughs> uh, and then they, the government redistributes wealth so that everybody mm -hmm. is equally poor. Basically. From each so. according to his ability to each according to his need is what I think Marx would say. Yes. So yes. you're trusting this central government to 
equalize life outcomes regardless of the decision making of the people. Right. And interestingly, they don't uh, they don't equalize it for themselves with everybody else. It, it, it uh, in every mm-hmm. uh, case I've ever seen of Marxism, the handful of people who run things tend to have a whole lot of wealth and, and everybody else tends to be poor. Because humans aren't angels. They, they, yeah. they, it, <laughs> right. it, they're not going to act perfectly, especially when you give them power. Right. Exactly. So how is this likely to work out? I, I we've already given a few clues. Yeah. As- <laughs> yeah. So I use this approach a lot in the workplace. I had a couple of, um, uh, most recently I had a couple of senior engineers that I was working with in another company that I'm with now. And they were both raised in Christian homes and they were both, both voting. Uh, they were going to vote for Joe Biden and for Democrats. So we were talking about this. And I said to them, um, I think that you should understand that if you vote for Marxist policies and, you know, not everything has to be fully communist in order to be Marxist, there are degrees of, of uh, socialism. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, take a look at this list of um, ratings of different countries' economies called the Index of Economic Freedom. So yep. on this page, it's put up by the Heritage Foundation, which is a big Washington think tank. Yep. They basically list out all of the criteria. This is similar to Wayne's, Wayne Grudem's book. He, they list out all the things that uh, matter in an economy, like the rule of law and unbiased courts and uh, private property and the ease of starting a business, just uh, tax rates, you know, income tax rates and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, so on. They rank all the countries and they the countries at the top, these are the ones that they call economically free. Okay. So at the mm-hmm. top, you find countries like Singapore, and Switzerland and Ireland, and then maybe a little further down countries like Canada and the United States. Okay. And Mm -hmm. what, what you find with those top countries that are the most economically free, uh, that is the most not socialist, their Mm -hmm. citizens have the highest per capita GDP. Okay. Yeah. They produce the most. Okay. And, Mm -hmm. and so even if you're living in a country like Ireland where the tax rates are high, at least those people will be able to earn a lot. So they, they still have a good living. All right. But the bottom countries are countries like North Korea and Venezuela that we already talked about both of those in other podcasts. But in those mm-hmm. countries, there is no private property. The government owns the means of production. They own, you know, Venezuela nationalized uh, the uh, largest uh, oil company uh, in, in Venezuela. And mm-hmm. in those countries where they've embraced Marxism, those citizens have the lowest per capita GDP. Yep, exactly. You know, I actually had a lot of friends from Venezuela when I was a kid living in Florida playing tennis who mm-hmm. I met at um, the country club. And um, uh, Venezuela used to be a very wealthy country. Then um, it went communist and mm-hmm. um, has become poorer and poorer ever since. And as we talked about uh, in a previous episode now, you know, it is an utter disaster of poverty with people, you know, eating their their pets and such just to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast, the country of Chile uh, used to be very poor. Then it became more capitalist, and now it's a lot wealthier. I mean, it, you know, right around the same time, these two countries made these these um, foundational changes, and we're seeing the results. That's something we absolutely have to pay attention to. And you know, again, like I've said before, this is not. Uh, some new idea that we're just trying to figure out the results of Marxism has been around for a very long time. There Mm -hmm. is a whole lot of data, you know, and not only do we have to consider poverty as an issue Mm -hmm. resulting from Marxism, but also communism in practice has resulted in the, the deaths of 
100 million people in the 21st century. Communism wow. is not a neutral philosophy. It is. Right. It results in more uh, murders, more deaths than all religious wars combined. And I wow. don't think most people know that. Well, speaking of religion, do you know what the Bible has to say about, you know, these concerns that are being raised by Black Lives Matter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the Bible teaches that our biggest problem is separation from God. Mm -hmm. You know, while it is tragic when any human life is lost, when any image bearer is poorly treated and harmed and killed, mm -hmm. it is not, you know, six unarmed black men being killed that is our greatest problem or wealth disparities, um, all the more so that are our biggest problem. Those are not even on the radar through, throughout the Bible as some huge problem that we need to do something about, but rather Paul talks about how we need to learn to be content in whatever our circumstances financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we also um, learn about in the Bible how all ethnicities, people of all colors of skin are mm -hmm. equal in worth and value and dignity in the eyes mm -hmm. of God and have equal access to salvation. I mean, this, this life is a little blip in time and eternity is going to last forever. So we need to get right with God. But, uh, you know, following Jesus means self-denial. It means enduring suffering. We are promised suffering. We are promised um, discrimination uh, by the world. And it's not something that we need to um, respond to with getting revenge or stealing from others or destroying property or any of these completely unbiblical and evil responses that we've been seeing from people who who think that, you know, life isn't fair. And yeah, shocker, life isn't fair. Uh, something mm -hmm. I, 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 again, I was told when I was five years old, it's not going to be mm -hmm. fair. You know, we certainly need to advocate for policies that reflect our biblical beliefs and values. I and mean, we, we did a whole episode on that a week ago mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how important that is. But, mm -hmm. but our focus, our, our main focus needs to be on loving God and loving our neighbors, um, not on our status or our grievances or what made us feel bad, um, and certainly not on coveting what our neighbor has. I mean, as soon as we, we start comparing ourselves to others uh, based on, on what they have and what we have and what the mm -hmm. differences are, we are in sin. We're told to, to work hard in our education, in our vocation to earn money so that we can partner with others for the gospel. Paul talks about that in Philippians. So these mm -hmm. are the types of things that we're supposed to be focused on as Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in my case, I would say that I certainly don't have the bad outcomes that they're talking about in terms of being mistreated by the police or, or having less, you know, less wealth than the average uh, white mm -hmm. person. So I would just say that the reason for my differences that are not what they're expecting is because I take Christianity seriously and mm -hmm. it governs my decisions in terms of, uh, like I said before, in terms of how much I prioritize entertainment, how hard I work in school, uh, what I choose to study, you know, whether I'm interested in having a certain status for my neighbors or whether I am more interested in giving a charitable donation. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I think what I would say is, is that I've had my life change as a result of becoming a Christian. And that's changed all of my priorities. And so mm -hmm. I'm authentically Christian. And some people might say, well, you're not acting, you know, the way that we expect you to act based on your skin color. You have the skin color that we have. You have to act like us. And I would just say skin color is nothing to me. And Christianity mm -hmm. is everything to me. 
I wouldn't even say if the two conflict, it's that one is nothing and the other is everything. And mm-hmm. so the decisions that I make are, are flowing entirely from my Christian worldview. And if that's the case, at least in my case, I'm not going to have those problems that they're concerned yeah, about. Yeah, great word, great word. Excellent. So um, what decisions should an American of any skin color make in order to stay out of poverty? Yeah, the, uh, there was an article by a black economist, not Thomas Sowell this time, Walter Williams, <laughs> who used to be the Oh, chair- another great one. Yes. Another, yeah, him, him and Sowell are the best. So he used to be the chair of economics at the Department of uh, Economics at George Mason University. Mm-hmm. And uh, he once wrote an article called How to Not Be Poor. And uh, this was for everybody. So it wasn't for one skin color or another. And he said, just do this. Graduate from high school. Get married before you have children. Stay married. And then take any kind of a job, even one that pays a minimum wage, because you're going to move up. All right. And uh, don't commit any crimes. You know, don't don't engage in criminal behavior. He said, if you do all that stuff, if uh, as a single or as a as a two people, you're not you're going to be above the poverty line in America. And your path to prosperity is assured because always when you have experience on your resume, you get better jobs and your income grows. Man, I'm making more than double what I started with when I when I got out of school now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even I wouldn't even say my salary is especially high for the industry that I'm in. So, wow. I mean, and these are very attainable. I mean, yeah, get, graduate from high school, uh, <laughs> don't have children out of wedlock, get any job. And don't be a criminal. <laughs> that, uh, that seems, uh, wow, mm-hmm. wow. Uh, I, I mentioned before when, when I was talking about what the Bible says that, that um, we are called as Christians to impact the world. And, and we did a whole episode on policy last week. And, and we mm-hmm. do agree that laws and policies matter and they should matter to Christians because people um, are greatly affected by policies and people matter to God. Yeah. So um, what sort of policies and laws should Christians support if we want to encourage and support Black people and their thriving? Yeah. So after after apologetics, I recommend people study Christian study policy. So I have a, I read a lot about it and I have a lot of ideas about this. So here's one. Uh, so to solve the fatherlessness problem, I recommend switching single mother welfare into tax deductions for any parent, each parent, based on the child's income up to age 25, and don't make the child pay income tax up to age 25. All right. So you have a child, it has one or two parents. If the child is working before age 25, the child pays no income tax and the parents get a tax deduction for some percentage of the child's income, but each parent gets a tax deduction. So if there's two parents, then they both get a tax deduction. And so that's an incentive for them to stay married and, and raise kids who will make a ton of money. So Another one is for education. So right away, every conservative says this, eliminate the federal department of education. And I would eliminate federal school subsidies of any kind and replace them with transferable taxpayer funded education savings accounts that are attached to each child. So this is like Ben Carson's health savings accounts, which is another good good policy. Such a good idea. Yes. Right. So give the kids, you know, a thousand bucks a year into this account. And if they use it for education, Great. But if they if they don't use it and they just go into a trade, they can give it to somebody else in their family. The main thing is, is that there's an incentive there for them to think about what bang they're getting for the buck, because this is their money. Right. Right. And so they will think, what should I study in order to 
to maximize the return on this. I don't want to blow this money on the on a degree that doesn't get me any return. So maybe petroleum engineering rather than um, women's studies, okay, <laughs> yep. uh, will be the decision there. And that's another thing is if we're going to give student loans, don't let the government make those decisions because the government doesn't care whether they get the money back. The people making those decisions, they don't care. Make the banks make the decisions and then the banks will tell you, hey, we'll give you the loan if you study medicine, but we're not giving you the loan if you study I hate to say this philosophy. Uh, <laughs> now they're all going to be mad at me, but that's okay because they can't afford weapons. Uh, the other thing that I would do is I would uh, privatize social security. Blacks don't live as long typically as other ethnicities. So they're never going to collect on this. So why are we making them pay for this? Don't just give them private retirement accounts. Again, we can match their contributions. You know, mm -hmm. if they put in, if they put in a thousand, we'll match a thousand. Government matches a thousand. If, if they put in 5,000, the government matches, say, 2,500. And that will encourage people to save for their own retirement and be independent. Yep, definitely. And uh, just in general, I'm all in favor of tax-free transferable savings accounts. Canada had tax-free tax, tax -free savings accounts for a long time under Stephen Harper. And you would have a certain limit. You could put in a certain amount of money. And you wouldn't pay any tax on any money that you made. And you just, you could put it into a bank account. You could put it in the stock market. But the point is, is that you didn't pay tax on anything you made off of these accounts. Uh, there was an annual contribution limit. And if you needed the money back, you just pulled it out. No penalties. And people were like, great. And they maxed out those things every year. Turning people into savers, giving them the incentive to make more responsible decisions about marriage, children, education, retirement healthcare, debt, wealth. This is how we're going to solve poverty. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love that. I'm all for privatizing um, anything that could possibly be privatized and mm -hmm. um, rewarding people uh, for making good decisions and encouraging them, uh, incentivizing good decisions um, mm -hmm. as opposed to what our government seems to do uh, so frequently. That's what private charity is for, right? You make a mistake in your life. You right. have you have private charity. You have the church to turn to. I think the government really should provide incentives for people to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. And that way, you know, as as you've said before, if if people get into a ton of trouble and they need help getting out of it, you know, they can go to the church and the church can can help them financially. But the church can also say, yeah, uh, you know, why you got into all this trouble? Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, here's some money and here's a brand new worldview. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. See, that sounds so terrible. And that's and yet that's exactly what worked for me. Right, <laughs> the right, worldview exactly. is more precious than anything else. It's 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 the relationship with God and literally an alternative set of priorities for you to pursue rather than your own. That's going to save you. Mm -hmm, absolutely. The more, the more you sacrifice your own interests in order to look at authenticating yourself as a Christian and making decisions that are respectful of what Jesus would like you to do, you're your own worst enemy. Yeah, really good discussion. I appreciate you sharing your experience and, um, and all of your knowledge on this, um, on this important topic. Thank you. All right, and that's, that's a good place for us to end. Um, if you enjoy the show, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. You can find the references for this episode on wintrynight.com. That's W-I-N-T. E-R-Y-K-N-I-G-H-T dot com. We appreciate you taking the time to listen and we'll see you again in the next one.